0: Thank you. It's so good to be with you and to visit Glorious Church. Uh, I was involved in a church plant in Braselton, Georgia, which is a suburb of Atlanta, uh, before we moved to Greenville in January, and uh, it was called Christ the King. So uh, I want to bring you greetings uh, from Christ the King Church Plant. Uh, in Braselton, Georgia. I want us to look at uh, Judges chapter 17. I'm going to read uh, chapter 17, but I will refer to chapter 18 uh, as well. This was in the time of the Judges. It was after the death of Joshua, but before the kingship under uh, Saul and David. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you... uh, "...about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears. Behold, the silver is with me. I took it." And his mother said, "...Blessed be my my son by the Lord." And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand from my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver, remember, 1,100 were stolen, but she gave 200 to the silversmith. Uh, uh, She gave 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine. And he made an ephod and the household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's a refrain that you find frequently in the book of Judges. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the uh, town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. And I'm going to sojourn here where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, Stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you ten pieces of silver a year, and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man came uh, to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest, as was, and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me, because I have a Levite for a priest. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you will strengthen us with it. We pray that you will give us insight into the Scriptures. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, I was a seminary professor at Reformed Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, the mother of all campuses. Uh, that They only had one campus then, and... They started many Mac campuses afterwards. Uh, But I was the second choice. I was only 33 years old. And uh, Dr. Strong, the homiletics professor who taught preaching, uh, was retiring. And they had called an older man, a class uh, who had gone to the same seminary, Westminster Seminary, uh, with uh, Dr. Strong but uh, he had uh, minor surgery and he died on the operating table. So uh, they rummaged around uh, and they were desperate to find a preacher uh, a preaching professor and so uh, they found me and that's how I became a seminary professor. Now when I was teaching preaching uh, I taught the students when you look at a narrative passage particularly a narrative passage in the Old Testament you may think what in the world does this have to do with me and some of you while I was reading judges chapter 17 may have thought the same thing <laughs> what what in the world does this have to do with me And how is this preacher going to make something of it? Um, One thing about little boys, they like to throw rocks in water. They just do. And it may be in in a mud puddle, or it could be in a lake. But when you study the Bible, you need to think of throwing a rock into the water and it sends out ripples the first ripple is the time bound meaning of the text to those people at that time so the time bound meaning of judges 17 and 18 would be that in the days of the judges micah and his family conform to the culture Around them and the religions around them and it reminds us of uh, what Paul said in the New Testament do not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind now when you read the book of Judges you'll notice a couple of things All people are people of their times. That's true not only in the Bible, but that's true in every generation. All people are people of their times. And the other thing that you notice is that believers have what I call tragic flaws. Glaring inconsistencies. So, (laughs) you look at uh, one of the most famous of the judges, uh, Samson. Uh, Samson cavorted with a prostitute. Uh, Samson lied. But that's true of most Christians, most believers that you find in the Bible. The Bible presents believers warts and all inconsistencies tragic flaws David the greatest king that Israel had a man after God's own heart was an adulterer and a murderer so people have uh, people conform to their times and even believers have tragic flaws now the second ripple is a timeless principle And that's the theme that I want you to remember today. We must beware of syncretism. Just as in the days of the judges, they conformed to the world, they conformed to their culture, and to the religions around them. So we have to be aware of syncretism in every generation of the church now the third uh, ripple when you throw the rock in the water will be the timely application how that relates to you in your particular situation at this time so the three ripples are the time bound meaning the timeless principle and the timely application. So we want to focus then on the uh, timeless principle. We have to beware of syncretism. Now, as you might expect, the text naturally falls into two divisions. Uh, Gloria is expecting that, so I'd say it. First of all, syncretism is a temptation in every age. Every single generation of believers has to deal with the lure of syncretism. Uh, Micah had stolen money from his mother. He's not the first young person to steal money from his mother. Uh, But it it is recorded in Scripture. He stole 1,100 shekels of silver. And his mother uttered a curse. Cursed be the man who stole my money. Well, he heard the curse. So, uh, like uh, some people, they're stricken in conscience only when uh, they realize the consequences of their actions, or or whenever they can't get a, get away from. Uh, the evidence is so strong against them they can't get away from it. So uh, Micah said, well, Mom, uh, actually I was the one who stole the money. And and she said, his mother said to Micah, Lord bless you. You are such a good son. You confessed to me that you uh, stole the money. It sort of reminds me of my little brother. We, uh, <clears throat> we had a a uh, corner grocery, uh, back in the 50s when we were growing up, I know some of you find that very hard to believe. But <laughs> back in the 50s, we had uh, corner groceries. We didn't have large supermarkets, and we had a charge account there. And James, my younger brother, uh, would charge candy there, and he was forbidden by mother to charge candy. So mother sent me to the uh, corner grocery uh, for a loaf of bread or milk or something or other. And lo and behold, there was James in there charging some candy. And then he saw me. He saw me enter the store. And then, of course, I said, what any kid would do, I'm going to tell mother on you. Uh, but I had to get what was uh, what Mother had uh, ordered, uh, so he uh, James ran home and he told Mother. He said, "You know, Mother, I know that you told me not to charge candy um, at the at Pearson's Grocery, uh, but I was weak, and I." I just, I did it, I charged a nickel's worth of candy, and here it is, penny candy, at five pieces, and, and, and mother said, you know, James, I'm so proud of you, that you have uh, confessed what you did, and she said, oh, well, that's okay, Roy was going to tell on me anyway. <laughs> well, Micah was like James. Uh, his mother had uttered a curse. And so he didn't want to be cursed. So he said, Mother, I was the one who stole your money. And mother, his mother said, well, Lord bless you. You're such a good son. And uh, I'm going to make an idol with some of the money that you have given back to me. Now, that was terrible. Idolatry was rampant in the in the ancient east and uh, these household gods were part of the health and wealth gospel of its day remember that Abraham had taken the family gods, idols with him when he went uh, up into Haran that was the health and wealth gospel of the day and so uh he made an ephod. Uh, Micah made an ephod, fashioned after the high priest ephod, the, the vestments uh, that the high priest wore. Uh, was was sort of a hotline to heaven where you could discern the will of God by the urim and the thumim uh, on the big stones on the shoulders. Uh, and he determined that he was going to uh, have a... Uh, he would get God to do something for him to prosper him because he made one of his own sons a priest and put the ephod on him. Well, later, there was a renegade priest who uh, is not spoken of until chapter 18, verse 30. And Micah thinks, well, if if I get this priest uh, with an ephod and a hotline to heaven uh, God's going to bless me and I'm going to be a wealthy man well then this priest this priest comes from Judah and maybe he recognized his uh, accent because he had a southern accent from Judah and he said "Uh, you're not from around here are you he said no I'm not as a matter of fact I'm from Judah, near Jerusalem. Uh, that wasn't the capital yet, uh, but I'm a Levite, and Micah thinks, hmm, the Levites are the sure enough priests. They are the ones that are supposed to be priests, and here I've made my son, an Ephraimite, a priest, which isn't really kosher, uh, so. I'm going to get this uh, priest to to be my priest. And he said, um, you're looking for a place. Uh, how'd you like to be a priest here? And uh, I'll give you 10 shekels of silver a year. And I'll provide you with clothing. And I'll provide you with a place to stay. And I'll provide you with food. How do you like that? So the guy says, hmm. Sounds good to me. Now, <clears throat> the, uh, the tribe of Dan, which is where this area, er- the, the tribe of Dan lived in this area. The tribe of Dan, if you look in Revelation chapter 7, and it lists the, the 12 tribes of Israel, Dan is not mentioned. That has led some people to speculate, and it's only speculation, that the Antichrist, the final Antichrist, will come from the tribe of Dan. Now, if you look in in chapter 18 at verse 30, uh, we do find the identification of this priest from Judah. Uh, I was in Joshua at verse thirty in, in eighteen thirty. And the people of Dan set up a carved image for themselves, and Jonathan the son of Gershom the son of Moses and his sons were priests of the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land now <clears throat> if you have a King James version which on which I grew up does anybody have a King James? <laughs> no, no oh you do, good uh, that if you look in the King James Version, it says the son of Manasseh rather than the son of Moses. Now, Hebrew was not my best subject in seminary. Uh, I'd studied Latin in high school and Greek in college, and, and uh, uh, Greek is just complicated Latin. But Hebrew is altogether different. In Latin and Greek, when you uh, conjugate verbs, you add letters to them. But in Hebrew, you subtract letters. It's crazy. And then it looks strange. It looked like a chicken who uh, stepped on an on a ink pad. Uh, and then just walked across the stage. And then you ha- it's all consonants. And the vowels were added later with diacritical marks under the letters and in the letters and above the letters. So Hebrew was not my, my best subject. As a matter of fact, if, if I got a C plus in Hebrew, I considered it like an A in Greek. However, When you look at the Hebrew text of chapter 18, verse 30, some of the editors, the Masoretes, did not want to embarrass Moses. So they added some letters, vowel points, to come up with Manasseh instead of Moses. But the preferred reading, as you have an, in a, a newer translation, is Moses. Here, here, Jonathan was the grandson of Moses. So the having a godly heritage does not protect you from syncretism, either in the culture or in uh, religion. So the, the second thing we want to notice is that syncretism has inevitable consequences. Syncretism, first of all, is a temptation in every age. And secondly, syncretism has terrible, corrupting consequences. Now, we're told in chapter 18 that the shrine that uh, Jonathan uh, established lasted until the Assyrian captivity. Now, there were two captivities in uh, the Old Testament. The ten northern tribes were sent off into Assyria in 722 B.C. The two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, lasted until uh, 586 B.C. when they, they were taken off into captivity in Babylonia. But everybody agrees. Both Jewish rabbis and Christian scholars agree that the reason for the Two captivities and the destruction of the first temple were because of the persistent idolatry of the twelve tribes of Israel, both the ten northern tribes and the uh, ten uh, and the two southern tribes. Uh, if you read in First uh, and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles there is a re- there's a refrain there just like there's a refrain in uh in the book of judges there was no king in those days and every man did that which was right in his own eyes so in kings and chronicles you find this this uh, uh Description of the kings of the northern kingdom. He followed. In the way. Of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. Who caused Israel to sin. What did Jeroboam do? He. He mixed idolatry. Pagan idolatry. With Judaism. So. Uh, Jeroboam's idolatry, and then the tabernacle uh, and the tabernacle at Shiloh, uh, that was later moved to Jerusalem, was a combination of paganism and uh, biblical Christian uh, biblical Judaism. Now. My uh, grandfather, my maternal grandfather, was a country Baptist preacher in Tuscaloosa County, Alabama. And I used to, uh, after my father died when I was three months old, we went to live with my grandparents for several years until my mother remarried. Uh, But then every summer I would spend at least a month with my grandparents. And my grandfather was a great role model to me. But one of the things I liked about going to uh, granddaddy's country churches uh, was that Sunday dinner we would go out to the T&M cafeteria in Tuscaloosa. And my grandmother, being a grandmother, she would let me get anything I wanted so i wouldn't get any vegetables (laughs) uh i would just get the meat that i wanted and i would get several desserts now a lot of people look at the bible as a cafeteria approach to the bible they only pick what they want and if the things are disturbing to them you know the veggies of the bible things that are good for you uh, they just pass them up. But we cannot take the uh, cafeteria approach of of the Bible. Now, the problem with idolatry is that it shapes God to our own preferences. That's, that's what Micah did. Uh, it was the health and wealth gospel of the day, I think, the health and wealth gospel is one of the greatest perversions of the gospel in our generation it is a vending machine view of God it is as if you say the right prayer and you have enough faith then you will get material blessings from God and you'll be wealthy and that the health and wealth gospel is that you, every Christian, deserves to be wealthy, every Christian deserves to be healthy, uh, and that is an aberration of God. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers of our nation, uh, was a deist. He didn't believe in miracles so he had his own version of the Bible and he cut out anything of the anything miraculous out of the Bible and that is what many people do today today people excise the moral commands that they don't like from the Bible but God is there's a a direct connection between creation and, judgment, and the final judgment. If God is the creator, he gets to make the rules. There were a couple of vacant lots on our, our uh, block. Houses had burned down and uh, they weren't rebuilt. And uh, there was a kid across the street, uh, Bill King was his name, and Bill King had uh, the latest and greatest of all the toys. Uh, back, uh, back in the 50s, uh, they had big uh, balloon tires and bicycles uh, and so forth. And Bill King was the first one to get a, what then we called an English bicycle. It was uh, with narrow tires and gears and hand brakes and so forth. And Bill had the latest and greatest uh, of uh, sports equipment, so uh, when we played the sand lot uh, vacant lot uh baseball, it was bill king's baseball and sometimes when Bill would hit something hit a, a grounder and he would run to first base, and someone would throw to first base and uh Then we'd say, oh, Bill, you're out. And he'd say, no, I'm not. I was safe. And then he would get mad and he would take his ball and go home. (laughs) And that was the end of the game. Now, God is the creator. He's not like a petulant Bill King who just gets mad and takes his ball and goes home. But because God created the universe, God is the one who gets to set the standards for for moral behavior. And that is against which we will be finally judged at the last judgment and the gospel. So, syncretism has inevitable corrupting consequences. Now, (laughs) When we think about our own age, it's very difficult to evaluate our own age. We can do that much more quickly historically. There was the age of faith before the Enlightenment of the the early 18th century. And then the age of reason that lasted from the beginning of the 18th century, the 1700s, until about 1960. And the worst thing you could be in the age of reason was uh, to be unscientific, to be illogical. Well, about 1960, in the 60s, we had uh, postmodernism. And that was the idea that, well, everybody gets to have their own truth. And what's true for you may not be true for me. And um, if you're a Christian and you believe in God and you believe in salvation by Jesus, then that's good for you. But don't don't try to force me, uh, force that upon me. And so that we we have been affected more by the culture of the world than we want to admit. Uh, I was involved in the uh, National Association of Evangelicals for many years and uh, one of my best friends in the uh, NAE was George Wood and he was at that time the uh, presiding minister of the Assemblies of God and One of my grandsons, Noah Smith, Rebecca's son, uh, got viral sepsis a week after he was born. Every system in his body was working against it. He was expected to die. I remember going to see him in the hospital and they had uh, IVs in his in his head and so forth. It was terrible. One of the first things I did was to call George Wood, and I said, George, pray for my grandson Noah. He is he is in the hospital. He's a week old. He's about to die. Pray for him. Well, <laughs> Pentecostal. <laughs> They believe that God is able to do something. Now, we Reformed folk, we like to hedge our bets, you know, well, if it be your will, and so forth. <laughs> but Pentecostals don't pray that way. They just pray earnestly, God heal this boy, deliver this boy. Well, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is now at basic training in, uh, for the Air Force in San Antonio, Texas. we have been more affected by the age of science than we think we are. We think, well, they're doing well for him, they're giving him antibiotics and uh, so forth in the hospital and they're giving him IVs and so forth. But I believe that Noah's life was spared by God. Divine intervention. So we are more affected by the idea that everything has a scientific or logical explanation than we realize. Someone has, one of the philosophers has, Christian philosopher, has described the brand of Christianity that we find today as as moralistic, uh, therapeutic deism. You know, we try to be nice people. And we want God to do something for us, give us a positive outlook on life. But we really don't think that God is involved in life and that he intervenes in life. I don't know how it is in Acts 29. I do know in the Presbyterian Church in America, it is almost impossible... Impossible to have a civil conversation about three issues. One is race, the other is the role of women, and the other is sex, sexual standards today. Why is that? It is because we are affected by the culture. We don't have journalism anymore. We have advocates. On the left, you have uh, CNN and CBS, and then the major major, uh, outlets. And on the right, you have Fox News and Breitbart and so forth. And people tend to look at the news reporting that they like to confirm our prejudices. And the church is supposed to be a counter-culture. We are supposed to be different from the culture. But we're not. And we reflect the culture more than we resist the culture. Now, some of you may be here and you may not be a Christian yet. You may not be a follower of Jesus. And you have to realize that God's standards are the standards by which you will be judged. And you will be judged by whether or not you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you must submit to him. You pray like the publican, not the republican, but the publican. And the sinner, the publican said, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other people. But the sinner said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's the prayer you have to pray. God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. We have to beware of the lure of syncretism. Syncretism is a temptation that we find in every age, including our own. And syncretism will have corrupting effects, long-term effects, that we may not see until our children or our grandchildren live. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this, your word. We pray that you would strengthen us with it. We pray that there's anyone here who does not know Christ, that he will pray, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and save me for Jesus' sake. We pray for all of the followers of Jesus here in this room, that you will help us to resist the lure of syncretism, to be uh, mixed other religions with Christianity, or to fall into the culture, the divisive culture of our day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.